Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4 a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Summer in London has ripe strawberries, green grass in the parks, and skies that are, at last, blue. The city fills up with visitors, many here for Wimbledon. Last July, I went to a dinner with people well-known in the world of theater, politics, movies, art, and television. At around 10.30, the doorbell rang, and John McEnroe entered the room. Everyone stopped talking. Over the years, I've witnessed in the River Cafe the spellbinding effect an athlete can have. None of us can do what they do, and we all know it. There are many, many images of John McEnroe on the tennis court, but the one that I recall is not athletic, but artistic. It's a photograph of John carrying, in fact, almost cradling, a painting by Philip Guston, who was a close friend of my father and mother. It was moving to see a strong, powerful athlete I admired carrying something so fragile. Today, in New York City, John has walked across Central Park from his home, and in the fading autumn light, we will talk about the food we eat, the art we love, and the friendship we, a tennis player and a cook, have begun. Really very nice intro. Thank you. Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. It'd be nice if you begin to read a recipe. I, uh, I do love Italian food, so I'm going to try to, yeah, uh, that's my favorite food. Is so. it? Oh, good. Okay. Uh, penne alla amatriana si. is the uh, dish that I'm going to read. Two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, 250 grams, nine ounces of pancetta, two dried red chilies, get a little spice, one red onion, two tablespoons, 800 grams of tin... Tomatoes. Oh, <laughs> tin plum tomatoes. 300 grams of penne. 100 grams of freshly grated pecorino. Pecorino. Mm, okay. okay. Heat the olive oil in a large frying pan. Add the pancetta and fry until it becomes crisp. Add the chilies, onion, and rosemary to the pan. Mm. And sweat. It says sweat, okay. Sweat, sweat. Do you know what that term? means? It means, know. yes, sweat. Well, it means that you don't want it to brown. You want it to soften. Add the tomatoes, stir well. Simmer for 30 minutes until the sauce is very thick. Bring a large saucepan of salted water to the boil. Cook the penne until cooked but still firm, which is known in Italian as al dente. Drain the penne and add to the sauce. Mix well and serve with the pecorino. Mm. 
You know, I don't remember that much about my childhood, mainly because what's happened to me from 18 to now I'm 63 years old has been so incredible in a lot of ways that I'm sort of like, you know, I had a nice, okay upbringing. Um, I had to commute an hour each way from Queens, New York, into the city to go to high school. Sports kept me, uh, helped me get friendships because mm-hmm. I was a bit of an introvert, mm-hmm. uh, shy kid. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not really now, but I was then. I don't have a lot of great memories of my childhood, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it was bad. Okay. It means that there was a, a loving family, a mom who took care of me, God rest her soul, my mm-hmm. dad as well that always believed in me. Did your mother cook? Uh, my mother did cook. Uh, here's the thing. Um, she wouldn't allow us to leave the table till everything was eaten. Mm. Did she grow up She grew up poor? during the Depression, so didn't yeah. have a whole lot. But she wasn't super poor, but she felt that we needed to finish what was on our plate. And was there a lot? And we had to have liver once a week or a month because yeah. we were Catholic, and we had to have fish, which I hated, and yeah. liver, which was even worse. Yeah. Felt like How I was going to throw up. How many were there? Uh, two younger brothers. But the good news was is that I didn't know that um, dessert was an option until I went to college. Oh, I see. Because my mom would always have a, you know, a chocolate cake with wow. vanilla. She'd go, you have to finish this. You're a kid. You're like, yeah. really? I have to finish this? Do you think so, maybe it's because she t- spent all <laughs> that time good cooking it? Maybe she's, <laughs> you have to finish your have chocolate cake. have to finish cake. your dessert. You have to finish so, it. So, you know, I was a bit, um, they used to have th- Four sizes when I grew up. There was small, medium, husky, and large. I was husky. husky. I was husky. a bit husky. I remember husky. They're, so they're, it yeah. dawned on me when I went to college um, yeah. that, oh, I could sort of eat whenever I want, yeah. and I don't have to eat what I don't want. Yeah. So were they miserable meals around the table? Did you always dread no, having to sit down? No, I didn't have miserable no. meals. They so were great just, meals. Yeah, great meals. Yeah. So, but the experience of having to because you saw I just once, once a month, yeah. you know, uh, or once yeah, a week, it was, it was tough. Uh, we didn't get the type of fish and chips that you got in yeah. England, say. Uh, that would have been more bearable, f- yeah. heavily fried with a lot of ketchup. Yeah, so did she work during the day? Or was you know, she home? was a nurse, an operating room nurse. Uh, when I became probably around 12, I think she retired from that because she had, I, I, she, uh, I had two younger brothers. We had three kids. My dad was a lawyer. So she sort of took care of us at home, yeah. and we didn't have anyone cooking for us except it's, her. It's hard work. She it is that. hard work. Know, you know, know I wish I had uh, been more appreciative yeah. at the time. It's like, yeah. Mom, get the food. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you all do the dishes afterwards, do you think? Did you all have to do chores? Uh, well, see, the, see chores? my mom was like the very clean house, so we didn't really have to do the dishes. I mean, we probably just stuck them in the sink, and mm. we didn't have to make our bed. Mm. She did that Which also. is sort of, mm. maybe that's why I got spoiled maybe. so young. <laughs> One of the reasons. Um, yeah. So meal times at the McEnroe House, they were fun. You talk. Uh, generally, it was a loud dinner table. You know, my parents are very loud. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it was definitely a shock going to London when I was 18 because people were very polite and, oh, really? you know, you had to be a certain way and beer was very hot yeah. and it was in a, you know, wood barrel or something like what the hell is wrong with this <laughs> is that when you were playing when you went when you were yeah, 18 first time i went to london was i i was 18 so um it was sort of these in 77 so that was like the punk sort of revolution mm-hmm. you know so i was walking down the king's road for mm-hmm. the first i'm like oh my god these people are crazy mm-hmm. 
Uh, but then I started realizing that they were sort of like, we were both, they started calling me a punk for mm. tennis. I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, have you seen the Sex Pistols? Mm. So I guess in tennis terms, I was sort of a punk. But compared to the real ones, I had a lot of work to do. Mm. But, you know, some of what they were espousing was not all that different than what I was thinking. You know, sort of rebelling against unfair. the obvious that, that felt unfair. Mm. I thought... You know, can I raise my hand and say you rebelled against what was unfair? That's what I believe. That's what I'll tell them. Yeah, no, Um, you were. But um, I'll admit I went over the line on a couple of occasions, maybe a couple hundred. uh, (laughs) But at the same time, it was because I believed that our sport should be viewed differently than it was and even is now, you know, this, you know, upper class have to behave a certain way. I think that's a bunch of baloney. I never believed that. I wanted to be thought of as the same way that they look at what you call football. Well, you're American also, uh, but you've been there since seven, in the 70s, I believe. Um, but we call soccer. They call football. Yeah. I thought, you know, in the rugby field, they're not saying, hello, how are you yeah. out there? And the, our football field or whatever sport it is. So that's always been an uphill battle. So I take pride in trying to change the sport you know? What I believe was for the better, but some people may differ with that. And you, you refused to play in South Africa, didn't you? Thank you and, for saying that. was my that, probably the proudest decision I, I ever think, made. You know, you know, um, and I think I just remember being with our friends and saying, this kid, you know, in Wimbledon is talking about what's not right, but his, his political values, his social values are so correct. And there weren't many players who were doing that. Did you ever play? Did you ever go to South Africa? You know, I did uh, only when um, they ended up apartheid. And I believe that the reason that I ended up meeting Nelson Mandela on my first trip, where he, Ruthie, he said, uh, I wish I would have given a million dollars if we had a tape of this. But he said to me when I walked in his, his house that he lived in, it's an honor to meet you. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, He's not talking to me, is he? Because yeah. that's about what I was going to say to yeah. him. Yeah. yeah, And he was the most beautiful man I ever met. Uh, well, just his hand. It felt like I was shaking hands with an angel. There was this feeling that I can't explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought a racket. I gave him the racket that I used at Wimbledon, the old wooden racket. I said, this is for you. And I, he held it, and he said to me, I listened to your match uh, when you played Bjorn in 1980, and, and I, <laughs> I realized that he was saying that he was listening to me while he was at Robbins yeah. Island, wow. where he spent 27 years of his life, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there complaining about a goddamn line call, like this is the world's coming into an end. And this guy didn't have a bone of bitterness, it felt what? like, in his body. Yeah. How in God's name could anyone ever have that this... So, you know, I really felt like he was one of the most beautiful people in history. He said it was an honor to meet you, and then he said that he'd listened to you at Wimbledon. Maybe that that was the connection, you know, that he was also saying, you know, well, that I, was fair Yeah, like fair. that. I, I just, you just could picture yeah. that. Uh, and then me going, oh, my God. Do you God. think he ever played tennis? From the way he was swinging the racket, I believe yeah. he did play. Um, he did, really. That you did play. I thought he played. I can't yeah. swear to that. It looked like yeah. he knew how to play. Yeah. 
My brother told me that he was once in Hollywood. My brother is in the movie said that he was in Hollywood and Mandela was there. And there was this huge audience and Spielberg was there and Geffen was there and Tom Hanks. Every every movie star, Harrison Ford was there. And then Nelson Dell was talking and he just looked out and he just stopped. And he came down to the audience. He walked through to the one important person in the room and it was Muhammad Ali, you know? And that's going back again to the athlete, to the person who had dignity, the person who, yeah, and that's, that's what we, you know. Well, I, I met Ali a few times, Did and you? he had a pretty profound effect too, but he was all, already suffering from, yeah, from the, the effects brain. of Parkinson's, yeah. and mm. it was tough to see Brave this, man, you know, incredible yeah. human being. And, you know, yeah. how many athletes do you know or they would give up three years of their yeah. Uh, prime? Yeah. And refused to um, fight because they on principle. Uh, so I think pretty much nobody, honestly. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know what were they thinking. Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When did you start playing tennis? I was eight years old. Did your tennis coach think about what you should no. be eating? No. Never did once mentioned just... it. You know, I ate um, cereal that had tons of sugar. Yeah. I'd have a bacon sandwich for breakfast, yeah. um, cinnamon toast with butter and cinnamon on it. Yeah. My mother never said a word. Yeah. You just... It didn't matter. Yeah, just eat. When you're a kid... I mean, I just totally disagree. I see these kids at my academy, and they've got these portions. I'm like, you're 12. Go burn and run around a little. What about when when they're sitting there and they're drinking the water and sweating? Would you ever think of having anything at all to eat? No, you wouldn't. You mean during the match? Yeah, you'd have some nuts or anything like that. No, nothing. I mean, bananas, you know, something like that. That board match went on for how long? Uh, Four hours. Were you hungry at all? Yeah. You were hungry. But, I mean, also you're so... Jacked up. Mm. I think if people ever saw me play, they could probably agree that they saw some a lot of energy being mm. thrown out. Um, mm. You're actually running a lot, so it's not a good thing to have a big steak an hour mm. or two before you play. I mean, I remember Bjorn Borg, my buddy, would have a steak two hours before every match, and it didn't affect him at all. He was fine. Yeah. He was probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, athletes they saw on a court. Uh, Murray, for example, Andy Murray, I saw him eating a turkey sandwich about a half hour before he played. He goes, oh, that doesn't affect me at all. Yeah. Before he yeah. played like, uh, you know, Wimbledon or something yeah. or USL. Because you can eat that, yeah. right? Oh, no, it doesn't bother me. You know, so yeah. s- some people have different metabolisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't do that. Um, 
Some people are even worse. Yeah. You know, they'll go the whole day and not eat. Not eat at all. Yeah. But, you know, then that's why, could be why they're a little more Maybe. irritable. <laughs> I felt like I didn't digest as quickly, needed a little bit more time. So where I was, you wake up in the morning. Wasn't a big breakfast. Not, not a big breakfast. Depending, depending on when yeah. I played. Uh, I would have a bigger meal um, probably three hours before I played. Okay, which would be that would what? that would be something like chicken, uh, some mm-hmm. type of pasta, some type of blandish uh, potato, some type of vegetable, mm-hmm. maybe a possibly a soup. Not really too so often. So you would eat three hours before, and yeah. then have a two-hour break before you actually were on the court. Okay. Two to three hours. Yeah. Later matches was preferable because um, I don't really like breakfast that much. Yeah. And I don't like to have to eat early, but sometimes you have to do it. You know, yeah. so it's um, in my day there was more emphasis on carbs. I was going to ask you if it's changed over. It's changed there. quite a what, bit. What year did you start? I started in '77. And so, what was nutrition like? I, I asked this to Beckham the other day about when did that feeling of you know what we ate affect our health? When, what do you think I'd say changed? the early to mid '80s. There was more talk about what. Um, would be most beneficial. You know, when you're 18, I think you can pr- pretty much mm-hmm. run through anything. Mm-hmm. And the first couple of years after that, uh, you can, you burn, you're burning so many calories, it almost yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Or so you thought, because it's sort of mind over matter. But um, it beca- I think it's, people are more aware of it than ever. I think they've gone a little bit too far the other way. Do you? In my opinion, but I think they just, you know, every little, you know, they regulate everything and they've got to do it at such a time and eat such Mm -hmm. an amount. And Mm -hmm. I think it's such a bunch of BS, personally. Mm. And are you going to come back to to Wimbledon this summer? You will be back. You know, I've been there probably um, 40, 77, I'd say 43 of the last 45 years. Yeah. When my first child was born, I missed one. the pandemic was canceled, but pretty much every one um, yeah. I've been there, either as a player or as a commentator. Yeah. So it's sort of come full circle because when they wanted to get rid of me for a while and throw me out, now all of a sudden, you know, I'm working for BBC of yeah. all places yeah. <laughs> and they're telling me to do exactly what I want. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I find that to be very um, commendable, I must say, because, you know, there's sort of, we thought like, hey, they're a bunch of stuffed shirts the way they talk and the way they deal with the event. But when I, they hired me, they were like, look, we want something different. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to be you. And I think that's the key to hopefully my success, if, the, you know, people want to call it that, is because I recognize that you need to be yourself. Obviously for you, and I can't imagine what it's like being booed on a court. I can't imagine who would do that. Not, well, yeah. mm. You know, but... Plenty um, of people did. I know. And and I think that you've come. How did you feel when you got booed when you walked on the court for the 1980 and 81 Wimbledon final against Borg? Didn't feel that great. Uh, But uh, I could always do what uh, Trump did, which was, uh, you know, I sat next to him once and uh, we were at a hockey game. Coincidence that we were sitting next to each other and they would introduce quote unquote celebrities and they mm. you know I'm hoping like I don't hope they don't boo you know <laughs> ladies and gentlemen John McEnroe three time Wimbledon champ you know luckily I'm a New Yorker I've been yeah. in New Yorker my whole life nice applause yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a half hour later 
ladies and gentlemen, you know, entrepreneur, real estate icon and apprentice. This is two weeks, two years before he ran. Uh, two years. Two years before two years. he ran. Yeah. 15,000 of the 17,000 people booed him. They did. He sat down and he looked at me and he says, John, they still love me. <laughs> and I thought, for the first time, I thought, maybe he could be a politician. He did. He just and sees it. of all things, the guy became the president of the United States. Yeah, but he's not going to be again, I don't think. Oh, well, you, know, yeah. that's a, you would have thought he would have actually, like, said, oh, my God, how in God's name did I do this? We've been around for about 250 years. I would say that was probably the craziest thing that ever happened. Mm. And we've had president. civil wars. Yeah. This guy, you know, never ran for anything in his life. Yeah. Yeah. Now, see, you can't do a, something with Trump, though, because he doesn't, you know, he eats terrible food. Yeah. Right? He, he doesn't beast, sleep, definitely. and he never works out. Yeah. And he's, you know something? He's the guy's got more energy than I've ever seen anywhere in my entire yeah. life. Yeah. It is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. Are you an emotional eater? When you would lose a game, would you kind of not want not to Not really. Eat? Nothing like that. Or when you That won. would be alcohol. Oh, would you? you would. <laughs> <laughs> or other things. <laughs> but not food. I mean, food might... I mean, it's not like I, you know, go in and eat a bag yeah. of, you know, yeah. potato chips because I was past yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. What's your plan? You don't go out. You don't party. You don't go out in the evening. You. I was it? not able to do much in the way of partying yeah. during Wimbledon, of all mm-hmm. things. You'd hate to sort of blame well, it do, on does that. Does anybody do it? Not that I'm aware no. of. No. I mean, no. I think that in the older days, a few of us tried to do it a little bit, yeah. uh, but not, you know, you'd be a fool to do it at Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah. You could do it at a period of time where you're not, you know, it's an exhibition yeah, yeah, or a sure. smaller event or it's not much on the line. Yeah. But if you're willing to do it then, then, then to me is uh, mm-hmm. sort of like you're not taking it seriously mm-hmm. enough. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, you may not want to be particularly social if you're more wound up uh, mm-hmm. maybe before or close to a match, especially yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sad I missed you in London because it was crazy the last time. You were there, and I was here. Do you remember you were just arriving? Uh, yeah, I, I came over leaving. for a cup, an event called the what Labor Cup, uh, which is a team tennis event where Roger Federer ended up retiring. Oh, so it was a big deal for the sport. Deal. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel? Uh, we felt. Uh, I felt that it was a beautiful night and yeah. moment. Incredible. Yeah. Um, we also won as a team for the first time, which was. Even more incredible. No yeah. offense to Roger. <laughs> <laughs> and so the weekend, or the week I was there, turned out to be awesome. Did you ever go to your friends? Because it's very international tennis. You're talking about playing with Borg and playing Federer. Do you go to their house? Have you been to Switzerland, to Federer's house? Never. Get a fondue, do you think? <laughs> that damn guy won't invite me. You won't? Okay, maybe so. Maybe uh, get Bjorn's him. house I've been at. What was that like? Uh, you know, it's met, you know, the Swedes, you know, yeah. they're... Great spot he had up in the, mm-hmm. on the water and yeah. loves to entertain. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the best friends you could ever have. Mm-hmm. Never eats much. He doesn't eat? Not a big eater. Oh. I don't know how. The guy never has yeah. been tired in his life. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal athlete. I don't know. It, it's constitution, you know, whatever it is, it's him. Um, because he'll, he eats because he has to eat. I yeah. eat because I like to eat. Yeah, we do, don't we? There's the difference. 
What about your kids? So having six kids, that's a kind of food responsibility. It did is. You, did you take that on in terms of being I a took parent? it on, but sometimes I think, you know, we, we, we should have just let it go and let them do what they want, pretty much. Let them learn on their own. I mean, you could recommend stuff. Um, mm. But if you sort of, no, that's not good to dessert because you're putting on, you know, girls mm. are, you know, mm. you know, I have four girls and two boys. Mm. Uh, every human being is different. Mm. All my kids are different, so you got to sort of know how to treat them. My son, one of my sons, he would eat so slowly. Mm-hmm. Everyone would be finished at the mm-hmm. table. He'd still be cutting the salad. Sean, eat your goddamn salad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and he'd sit there. Absolutely perfect body, though. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he, you know, he, he chewed everything 20 times. So the way it, I, I never said that. Did you all sit down to dinner when you had the kids, the, the yeah. second family? Mm-hmm. You had dinner every night together. And somebody they called me you. Larry the Lecturer oh, is really? what I what became known as because I try to give them a little bit of uh, yeah. life's lesson. And they, oh, okay. oh God, here he goes yeah. again. About food, about life. About yeah. anything. Sometimes yeah. it was food. Sometimes it was about tennis. Sometimes yeah. it was about life. Sometimes it was about schoolwork. Yeah. Sometimes it was about nothing in particular. And then I started pontificating, and that rubbed them the wrong way. And sometimes I overdid it, and then I dig in, and they go, Dad, everyone disagrees with you at the table. There's seven seven to one, including Patty. And I go, I'm still right. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I love Italian food. Have you ever lived in Italy? Did oh, you I've never lived there. I've been there, you know, probably 50 to 75 times. Really? Yeah, playing, okay. you know. But Yeah. Where did you go all over? Oh, every, every city you can imagine. Yeah. Okay. The first uh, rock and roll tour that I ever participated in as a band, allegedly, yeah. uh, I was the most traveled, unsigned band in history. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is that a fact? That uh, a, I would I would bet money on that. But we did a two week tour of Italy mm-hmm. in the summer of 1994. 94. Okay. 94. So how old would you have been? I was 35. Yeah. Um, you, I had stopped playing. How did you segue from a athlete? Well, I was more of a uh, sort of a passion and a mm-hmm. I don't want to say hobby, but something mm-hmm. that was trying to sort of find that uh, uh, find out where I was headed. Because, you know, when you stop playing, 
it's not always on the terms you want. I was going through a divorce at the time, at the end of my career, which I didn't anticipate. I had three kids, um, so I was, you know, then then the next couple years, you're going through it. Uh, It's not fun. So I needed a little bit of levity, uh, and so I was able to uh, start to do something that I love to do. Uh, It made me appreciate my friends who did it for a living more. But it was a fun trip, I must say. And why Italy? Uh, my agent at the time was Italian, and so he sort of set this whole thing up. Mm. Um, we played where Frank Sinatra played. I forgot, Forte de Marme. Yeah, Forte uh, de Marme, yeah. yeah. But we played some nice locales. Uh, but uh, we um, we didn't eat? knock them dead. Um, uh-huh. now, we didn't get to eat the food that you know, you're normally able to get pretty easily just because of scheduling and stuff. But, I mean, you can stop by a highway, yeah. which is a lot better than the I highways like those in the little, States. what are they yeah. called? They're called the Ajip. Um, exactly. Those little places. You can get and some pretty get good a, pasta. Yeah, you get pasta, you get those little thin sandwiches that they fry. <laughs> when you segue from that, that photograph that I described, which I can imagine in my head of you carrying the painting... How do you segue from, from music to art, from tennis to Well, art I always loved art because I relate to artists uh, big time because um, they're as close to tennis players as almost anyone else because they're sort of on their own island. They've got to uh, represent. They go to a gallery opening. People mm-hmm. could be there and go, this sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Mm-hmm. The person could be well, right that's what there, and to you, Gustin, didn't it? Well, yeah, they couldn't. He couldn't give yeah. those paintings yeah. away. Yeah. He got so frustrated with the art world that he sort of walked away from it. Um, so it's like sort of like if I walked into the center court of Wimbledon, and you know I lose six zero, you know, and I'm down two zero, mm-hmm. and people are booing, and you, you feel like you know you want to hide. Mm-hmm. It's the worst feeling in the world. So I think it takes guts to put yourself in a position. There's a great reward if it goes well, but there's also a definite downside. So it takes, I think it takes emotional strength to do that. And so I think it's the same as for an artist or like a comedian that does stand up. You know, I've seen many a comedians yeah. bomb. And I, I, I will never criticize a player on a court if I see them giving 100% and they're laying an egg. That's not what I have a problem with. I have a problem with the people that go out in the court and don't try and give yeah. their best. That's yeah. the part I have a problem with because you've been put in this position where you could do something that would be truly memorable mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. a you know a truly memorable site, say, at Wimbledon mm-hmm. or the U.S. Open. You don't want to go out there and half-ass it. So that's why I've always related. I always loved Gusson. He was one of my favorite artists. Um, I'm not sure why that started. I loved, like... I, I think because they're so political. Yeah. yeah. He, all through his career, you know, in his, even when he was in his 20s, uh, not his 20s, in the 20s and yeah. 30s, he was painting hooded figures and, yeah. you know, clan people yeah. railing against that. And then he went through different periods, which I love to see artists tr- doing different things. Yeah. And then he went almost, you know, abstract expressionist. Mm-hmm. You know, you're mm-hmm. like... That's a huge change. And then back to these like cartoonish figures, which I thought were incredible. So I just thought this guy just had a, you know, that would be like the type of artist that if I was an artist, I'd be trying to emulate, you know, so. And he suffered, he really was. So, and and when you're talking about, you know, saying somebody is just criticizing them in such a damaging way, you know, Hilton Kramer of the New York Times 
when when Gustin had his first show at Marlboro and he showed the hooded figures and he showed the clan, just wrote on the front page of the New York Times art section, you know, this guy should give up and go go home. And you know, he got on a, a boat to Rome. We, my, he was, as I said, he was a friend of my father's, who was also very political, and it was so damaging, you know, and it was so cruel and it was uh, fearful. And I, it was, I find it, uh, you know, difficult to uh, respect uh, these. I mean, I respect someone who gives some constructive criticism who, or who would admit, I don't get this, and I'm not sure why this person did it, but I've got to sort of let this, let me digest this. Mm-hmm. Or some half-ass that goes on, you know, some tennis guy, you know, who writes tennis, who did make it because he wasn't good enough, and then he's going to sit there and criticize me. Mm-hmm. I go, you better know what you're talking about mm-hmm. before you start laying it out. Mm-hmm. Some... People that fought, went around the tennis circuit for a handful of years, I respected. Mm. I respected their opinion. I would, you know, take to heart what they would say. At least I give it, you know, mm. the legitimacy it deserved. A lot of other people would come in that show up one or two weeks a year because they were local beat writers for the hockey teams or basketball, and they'd roll in when we went to Philly or these other places. And they'd start, you know, lambasting the tennis players. And then I was like, you don't know a damn thing about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And it was frustrating. And it's hard to respect that. Yeah. Um, so I could certainly see where a guy who, you know, put his heart into soul into something. You know, either way, like in my case, I was lucky because even I didn't like it. But sometimes negative attention can still people still want you at you know they'll offer you money to come because they think that you know a, a car crash yeah. if you're an artist and someone completely shits on you and you know you don't sell anything you're not making any money so you could you know head down a really bad path uh and i think a lot of uh artists have done that mm-hmm. as well as comedians um the upside is if you're able to stick with it and believe it that you know, the turnaround could be all the more sweet. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to happen that often with artists that are alive. And nowadays, to me, the most successful artists, at least financially, they're like businessmen. They're not even like, you know, the best artists to me anymore. They're just the smart, they're extremely smart people. And they manipulate the system in a, in a brilliant way. I mean, I must say, um, and, that's part of what I like about sports, ultimately, because you can't really do that in sports. I mean, ultimately, you got to go out there. You can talk all you want, but, you know, you get on the court or you got to step up. So that part I like, uh, that ultimately the, the best will, the cream will rise to the top. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, your honesty and your, you know, what you say about whether it's, you know, the world or Trump or the booing or the art or the solitariness. It is a solitary thing, isn't it? Play, you know, being an artist in your studio. Very solitary, playing, especially you know, our sport. And, you know. and your sport. That's why I love doubles. Musician, hmm? doubles. And I also love playing for my country because yeah. you're with the team for yeah. that brief period of time. And I think you, um, 
you know, as I said, from the very beginning, we were on your side. We thought you are, you know, your anger was fine. Your unfairness was respected. Your politics, you know, your politics were amazing. Are and I think as a model, that's what counts, you know, and as a player. And I think you're tell really, me more. No, I, think, um, I do. I think you're really nice. <laughs> I think you're nice you. to walk no, over nicer. across the yeah. park. I think you are. So if we think that food, you're going to have food which makes you feel healthier or food which makes you feel better performance, you could have food that pleases your mother because you've eaten it, you could have food that you want your children to eat. Food can be all that, but can also be comfort. If you needed comfort, what food would you reach for? Big ball of uh, ice cream? Ice cream? I'm sure you're going to say <laughs> I love pasta. ice cream. I do too. What I love flavor? ice cream. What flavor? Cookies and cream, mm. um, coffee, uh, you know, mixture of things. Mm. Uh, do you always keep it in the house if you yeah, need it? Yeah, I do, but that's not, you know, we shouldn't do that. I that's love, okay. you know, I love a beer and pretzels late mm. at night. Uh, that's mm. comforting. Yeah. Um, Is there a food that reminds you of your childhood? Uh, pancakes, pancakes, to some degree. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy to prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomai Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max.